Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through commitment to reading. This is your host, Ryder Ashcraft. Today, I am joined by U.S. Navy retired Admiral Mike Rogers. Admiral Rogers retired after a 37-year career in the Navy as the head of the National Security Agency and the head of U.S. Cyber Command. He oversaw the operationalization of the nation's cyber mission force, culminating in the elevation of Cyber Command to the senior most command level in the Department of Defense. Originally a surface warfare officer, he redesignated to cryptology in 1986. Admiral Rogers served multiple sea duties aboard U.S. submarines and surface units in the Mediterranean and Arabian Sea. He also served as the Director for Intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the U.S. Pacific Command. He holds a bachelor's degree from Auburn University and a Master of Science in National Security Strategy. He is also a Massachusetts Institute of Technology Seminar Fellow and a Harvard Senior Executive and National Security Alum. Sir, thank you for being on the show with us today. Hey, thank you, Ryder. Great to be with you. First question, what are you currently reading? Well, I, I generally don't read just one thing at a time. I'll, I'll bounce around. Um, let's see. Last night, I just fit one of the things I'm doing now that I've retired from the military. I'm still working, but I'm retired from the military. So I've tried to set some goals for myself. One of the goals I've set from a reading perspective is I said, you know, I want to go back and read some of the things that I read when I was when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult or books along the way that I really enjoyed. Um, and so I've identified some authors back from when I was a kid. One of them as a junior officer, this was he was writing largely in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Uh, I just finished a Jack Higgins book. You know, he's kind of the spy mystery Cold War genre. Um, and he had a character, an Irish character that I always enjoyed. So I just finished I think number three in the he wrote 22 books with this character. I finished number three. Uh, although, again, I've read them all before. Um, I'm just starting today. Uh, David Kilcullen, a writer I really like, who did a lot of writing on um, the challenges of insurgency for the military. He's kind of shifted to the great power idea. And so he's got a book called The Dragons and the Snakes that just came out. I also have a, a, a cyber book that I'm uh, also going to start reading. And then lastly, I, I really love Nordic noir. I love Scandinavian mystery. So I have authors, Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, Finnish, uh, Icelandic, and a Scotsman that I really like. So I'm, I'm reading, I'm getting ready to, to read. Uh, in fact, I should knock on wood, receive it in the mail when I get home uh, later today. Uh, a Danish author, Juicy Adler Olson, who writes a Department Q series of mysteries. Um, and the latest one has just come out in paperback. So I just got it and it should be waiting for me when I get home. Do you ever find that if you go and reread books that you may have read as a teenager, as a junior officer, that there are different takeaways and different lessons that can be learned as you reread them later in your career? Yeah, I generally find several reactions. In some cases, I think to myself, boy, this wasn't as good as I remember, <laughs> to be honest. In some cases, I think to myself, man, I can remember exactly what I was doing. Because for me, a book isn't just a book. So for example, many people love Kindles. They love the ability to remotely access books, magazines, text, social media. I like physical feel of books. And it's one reason why I literally have thousands of books. Um, and 
I, when I look at a book, it's not just a book to me. I'll remember what I was doing where, for example, I can still remember what I was reading when my eldest son was born, you know, your fellow Academy grad. I can remember the book I was reading when he was born in part because I, it brought his name to me. His name is Justin. I was reading a book about Justinian, the Byzantine emperor uh, and his Theodora, his queen. Uh, he is a military commander who I, who I thought was one of the most underappreciated military commanders in history, who I always thought highly of. So I read a lot about him and them. And so a book is more than a book to me. So I'll also sometimes, to go back to your question, I'll think to myself, I remember what I was doing then, or I remember what tour I was on, or, you know, I remember what was going on in my life. I'll also get the, to, to your point, you'll also get the, you know, boy, that really turned out to be true, or that was really relevant, or maybe I didn't fully appreciate that the first time I read it. It's one of the reasons why I am a fan, uh, for me at least, I will read books more than once. Uh, not everything, but I will read books more than once, particularly over the space of decades. Again, showing my age, I can do that. And um, I just, it, it's like music to me. You don't listen to a song just once. You don't listen to an album just once. A book's the same thing to me. Come on, man. It brings enjoyment multiple times. So I have to ask, have you read all of the thousands of books that you own? Boy, every time somebody comes to my house, they look at... So when I read, I, like many, you know, we bounce all over in our military careers. Um, and so quite frankly, when you're younger or more junior, the challenge is uh, a combination of you don't have a lot of money to buy all the books that you would like. And... You don't always have all the time. As I got older, as I got more senior, well, I didn't necessarily have all the time. I, I certainly had more money, could buy more books. And now I'm in a stage of my life post-military where while I'm still working, I'm not, I'm not working 80 to 100 hours anymore a week. So I, I have time to read and I have the resources to get you know, books that I find interesting to recreate at the moment, I'm in the midst of, I, I have about 15 authors I really loved when I was a kid growing up. Um, and I'm trying to recreate, as I'm adding to my library by going back and now getting some of the books from the authors that I really liked that I got out of the library, you know, at the time. Um, but bottom line, I'm in a position now where I've probably read 60% to 70% of what I have, I, I've read. Probably 20% of it I've read more than once, um, but that means I got 30 to 40% that I haven't read yet. My wife keeps asking me, why Why do the books keep, keep coming? Why do the books keep coming? And it's just, it's a part of life I just love. You know, because everybody reads differently. For me, and I apologize, right? I know you didn't ask me this, but, you know, I read because, number one, I want to learn. You can never stop learning and growing. I don't care what, what you do in life. I don't care what your rank is. I don't care what your skill set or designator is. Look, you have got to keep learning. I'll read to understand. Someone will say to me, hey, have you read such and such? Or, hey, what about this? So a lot of times I'll try to find a book or um, reading. because Sometimes it'll be magazines. Sometimes it'll be online stuff. I'll, I'll read because I want to understand what somebody said or I want to understand somebody else's viewpoint. I'll read sometimes because I want to escape. And I'm the first to admit when I was, you know, certainly as an intelligence professional um, and in my duties 
as they got more senior, uh, you know, as a J2 at, at, at Indo-PACOM, as the director of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs, you know, as the head of the NSA, man, your life was just jammed with reading as part of your job. I mean, you're just reading intelligence products, you're, you're reading publications, you're reading an, uh, analysis by your own team, by other people outside. So at times during those tours, I found reading became for me in my own time, quite frankly, a way to escape in some ways. It's probably why, for example, I really got into Nordic mysteries. I, I just, I wanted to detach. I just wanted to mentally decompress and I wanted to do something that had nothing to do with work. Um, and so reading for me became an attractive outlet, you know, in addition to working out and other things, but reading became an attractive outlet for me. So I always encourage people, look, don't, reading doesn't have to always be this super serious you know, very focused journey where you're trying to gain all the knowledge in the world that you can. Reading can also be a way to relieve stress, to kind of mentally detach as a connector with other people. You know, my wife will tell me, hey, I've read so-and-so and I found that really interesting. Um, and while we have very different tastes in reading, I will sometimes say, hey, uh, can I borrow that from you? Or what was it about that that you really liked? You know, was it, is it the author's style? Was it the subject matter? Um, so reading also can be a way to connect with other people. And I really like that. You know, it's just like music in some ways. Sir, were there any books that you may have read earlier in your career that helped prepare you for challenges of higher leadership, especially the highest levels of leading in the NSA and in U.S. Cyber Command? Uh, I will tell you, a book, a series of books I started reading when I was 11 years old that led me to believe I wanted to become a naval officer. I mean, I am very lucky because of books, for example. I literally told my parents when I was 11 years old, I was gonna be a naval officer and I was gonna drive ships for a living. Now, I grew up in a non-military family, though my father was in the National Guard, but um, the National Guard was very different in the 1960s. I'm not trying to say it's a bad thing. It was just it was just a different kind of thing. We never set the guard to Vietnam, for example. They took guard volunteers, but we didn't deploy units. Vietnam. Um, I, in the 60s and the 70s, I grew up in the midst of the Vietnam War. Um, on the other hand, I read a series of books by C.S. Forrester, well-known, Hornblower is the character who starts as a midshipman, ultimately rises to uh, vice admiral. Um, I had no idea that was <laughs> in the cards for me. That wasn't why I, I liked it, but it was a series of books. Like I said, I literally started when I was 10 or 11 years old. And it was about a British naval officer during the Napoleonic Wars, his rise. But the part that I found interesting was the books resonated with me because they talked about responsibility, duty, integrity, that there can be loneliness associated with executing those functions, that you can become increasingly isolated from the crew, the wardroom, even some, when you make decisions that you know others don't like and don't agree with, you know, in the book, several of his, of the other characters in the books, for example, he makes decisions that he believes are the correct ones, but aren't necessarily popular. And so he pays a bit of a personal price in the sense that so he becomes more isolated. He's, it's the, some of these decisions change his relationship, but he feels strongly that, hey, you always got to do the right thing for the right reason. Um, now, I had no idea that, you know, I was going to end up being a four star and, you know, run, in, in this case, the largest intelligence organization, literally in the free world, or be 
you know, a combatant commander. I, I was a crypto, I started as a surface guy and then I transitioned to cryptology. We'd never had a cryptologist go beyond two stars in the history of the Navy. And so I found myself in areas and responsibilities that were out of the historic norm. So I, I didn't have uh, a lot of peers and friends that I had grown up with, matured with, um, you know, helped to who helped to develop me and mentor me. I, I found that for many of them, I wound up in a set of experiences that were different. I'm not trying to argue good or bad, better or worse. That's not what I mean. They were just different. And so for some reason, I've always gone back to that that series of books and that that author. And I literally read them, like I said, between the time I was 10 and 13, I think there's probably nine, nine books in the series. And in fact, when I retired and I took all my stuff out of storage, and I actually, I, I actually built, I bought a house actually built a library, worked with an individual to design a library because I, for the first time in my life, I now can get all my books out. I, I still don't have enough room, even though I have a complete room. I have a full library ceiling to, to floor and that's still not enough. But I remember that, oh man, I, I opened a box and there was Lieutenant Hornblower, the hardback that I had bought when I literally was like 12 years old. And I'm pulling it out of the box and I'm just thinking, Boy, what a journey, you know. <laughs> At the time, I think I was, I, I, I'd been out for a year, but I'd done 37 years in uniform. I was 58 years old, and I'm thinking, wow, I read this 46 years ago. I've had it with me every step of the way on the journey. And, you know, I still think back to what it taught me. It's just amazing. That's part of the power of, of books to me. That is pretty incredible, sir, that you're able to take something from when you were 12 years old and it was applicable and was able to follow you throughout your entire career. Yeah, I don't know why, but. So you brought up earlier about how your experiences were different than your peers that you'd grown up with. You didn't necessarily have any mentors that you could say. Well, I had mentors, don't get me wrong, but it, it was different. Most So many of your, like, think of yourself at 1120, a submarine officer. You know, you have a series of mentors from juniors to peers to very senior who have lived through many of the experiences you've had or you're potentially going to have. And the scenario I found myself in once, it, for me, my whole career changed when I got, when I made captain. Um, I was, I rolled off six fleet. I went to get my joint education at the National War College, very typical. I'd done a lot of all cryptologic or surface stuff in that stage. Um, and then when I rolled out of the National War College, I went to the joint staff for my joint payback tour. It's the, you know, that's 2003. So we've invaded Afghanistan. We've invaded uh, Iraq. When I show up that summer, I initially start in cyber associated things. Again, very much associated with my career. And then within six months, I find myself as the E8 of the J3. And we're in the middle of two wars. And I can remember telling the J3, sir, I'm, I'm not what the Navy or the military defines traditionally as an operator. Are you sure you are? want me to be here. I mean, we're in the middle of two ground wars and I'm a naval officer. So we're in the middle of two ground wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And that's what Secretary Rumsfeld, you know, the chairman and the Congress are constantly beating you up. Sir, I, I've never served in Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm not a ground guy and I'm not, quote, an operator. And yet he saw something and said, nope, I'd like you to be my EA. And then from there, he became the director on the joint staff. 
he asked me if I would be his EA in that job. But first he said, hey, I want you to go up ahead of me. So I got to work with, and, and the J3 was then Lieutenant General Norty Schwartz, who ended up becoming Transcom and then Chief of Staff of the Air Force. He, he tells me, hey, go up ahead of me. I start working with an officer I've never met before, then Vice Admiral Tim Keating, who becomes the commander of NORTHCOM, then the commander of Indo-PACOM. I do that. Then, then I get asked to go interview to be the chairman's EA. And I'm like, oh, man, sir, I... I I'm not really into this EA thing. I, I was hoping, quite frankly, that after the after then Admiral General Schwartz left to go out to Transcom, I could go back to computer stuff, to cyber stuff in the J3. Um, it didn't work out that way. I got grabbed to go be the special assistant to the chairman. Ultimately, he kept telling me, Mike, I'm the first Marine General Peter Pay, 16th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Man, amazing. I learned so much from him. And he kept telling me, Mike, as the first Marine, I can't have a Navy guy as my EA. And I'm like, hey, sir, I understand. No problem. I, I'm ready to go back to the J3 and do cyber stuff. This, this EA thing really isn't me anyway, sir. I, I try to do the best job I can, but it's probably not really me. And he ultimately kept calling me back for interviews. And then he finally said, I'm going to create a chairman's action group. I want you to create this for me. I want you to run this for me. I want you to be my thinker. So I got to spend two years with a chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I'm a cryptologist. I'm, I'm sitting in, he said to me, you will sit in every meeting with me. You will travel with me everywhere uh, unless it's a one. So literally I'm an 06 cryptologist, but I am sitting in the tank. I'm up in the secretary's office. I'm traveling with him everywhere. I don't say that because there's something unique about Mike. I say that because it goes back to your original question. I found myself in this set of circumstances that Everybody I knew, they're going, I don't know, Mike, we've never done anything like that. Fortunately, along the way, I had some great mentors who helped me. General Pace helped me. Admiral Keating, General Schwartz. They all, you know, said, hey, look, we think there's potential in you. Um, we'd like to give you an opportunity. Of course, you have to deliver, Mike. You know, I was like, well, I certainly understand that. I know how this works. Um, but as the chairman's special assistant, I, boy, I, Part of my job was literally, he said, I want you to think about the things that I am not thinking about that I should be. And I want you also to think about how do I tie all this activity that I'm going through, all these meetings, all this travel, how do I tie this all together into a coherent strategic picture that I can use to generate train, change and a vision for what the department and what the military needs to be? Man, what an opportunity. So boy, all the reading that I did, for that and, and again because he wanted to to get into things that had nothing he said tell me what i should be thinking about i'm not i said sir I, you need to understand demographics for example look at the way this is going to shape i mean china for example 1.2 billion people it's japan at 10 times the population it's got this massive age issue it's got a huge gap uh, because of the one child policy I'm going, sir, it, it isn't apparent now, but it will be in the next 10, 20 years. So I, and again, I just tried to read as much as I could about things that I thought were relevant that he didn't necessarily have the time to do every day that myself and the team that he had created that we could do. Um, so I, boy, I just was very, very fortunate. Sir, on the subject about reading about things that are relevant, maybe when you're in a position that isn't your traditional career path, a lot of junior officers that are in, say, operational billets on a submarine, on a surface ship, they're flying, they're leading Marines, they're leading soldiers, airmen. 
they're starting to experience the cyber domain moving into their traditional domains. And that's kind of intimidating because we don't have a lot of experience, knowledge, training in that particular sector. We generally leave it to your community. Do you have any advice or recommendations for how young leaders can prepare to operate in their own communities while maintaining awareness of how the cyber domain could affect readiness? Yeah, so cyber to me is a little bit, it's foundational increasingly. What I mean by that is, look, I was never, as a quote, restricted line officer, as a cryptologist, you know, I thought to myself, Mike, you still need to understand broad concepts of maneuver. You need to understand principles of maritime and ground combat. You need to understand the broader context in which the military is operating outside your particular specialty. Reading became a way for me to do that. You know, for me, because I, I thought reading is one of the tools in your kit bag. It's not the end all be all. And you can't read your way into perfect knowledge and insight. I, I wish that was the case, but my experience, it doesn't work that way. Reading should be viewed as something that complements experience, education, training, that it can be a powerful tool to augment and expand on those things, but it can't replace those things, if you will. So for me, I can remember as a, a mid-grade officer, again, my expectation, I was hoping to do 20 years. I wanted to go to command and I was hoping to make captain and that I was going to retire at 20 years. I mean, I, I pretty much... Although, like many of us, there was one point as a JL, I thought I, I thought I was going to punch out. I was so frustrated. Um, but ultimately, I had some friends that said, "Hey, you seem to love that. You always love the Navy. It always energizes you. Perhaps it's just about doing something different within the Navy." So that's what I did. I ended up shifting into something else. But as I found myself spending more and more time on the journey, particularly when I became a captain, and it, and it appeared that perhaps I wasn't going to just do twenty years and then go home. I thought to myself, okay, Mike, so what are the skill sets that you need as you potentially become more senior? I decided for me, I need to understand leadership. So don't assume you're the best leader because, boy, particularly as, you know, you're a sub-unified commander, you're a numbered fleet commander, you know, as you're gaining more and more levels of responsibility, the leadership principles remain the same, but they're application and context starts to change. So trying to understand that, I think, can be very beneficial. So I thought leadership. For me, because I was in you know, a very technical part of the mission set, I thought you need to understand leadership and you also need to understand technology and leadership in a technical construct. Boy, because one of my takeaways in my career was the, the kinds of things I did as a leader, as a surface warfare officer, and the workforce that I worked with was a little different than the lead, the workforce that I was working for, working with in cryptology, for example. I, I used to tell my peers as a cryptologist, look, our workforce, every one of them could do our jobs if they wanted to. They've got the educational background. They've got the knowledge. They have the skills. They just decided that's not for them. They wanted to do something else. But don't think for one minute, um, you know, they could all do your, our jobs if they wanted to. That's how smart they are. That's how good they are. And so I thought, boy, leadership and then understanding how do you lead technically focused individuals? How do you lead technically focused organizations? I also thought as you get more senior in your leading organizations that are larger and larger, the business side of life, if you will, becomes really important. So I spent some time reading books in the business arena about how do you make sure that your organization is 
and maximum effectiveness and maximum efficiency. How do you make arguments for more resources? How do you execute the resources you've been allocated in the best possible way? You know, how do you innovate? How do you drive change in large organizations? So I spent a lot of time trying to read those areas. And then lastly, I'd always try to identify, so what are some of the events in the past that have applicability to today and tomorrow? Because it is amazing. While technology certainly changed, human nature has not. And the things that tend to shape behavioral choices, the things that tend to shape organizations, nations, individuals, appetite for risk have been fairly consistent over time. So I also said to myself, so what are the things in the past that potentially can gain me insight about decision-making and choices today and in the world of the future? So those are the things that I generally tended to you know, kind of build a, self, a self-help reading program for myself. And I apologize, Ryder. I may have strayed way from the question that you asked. I apologize if that's the case. Not a problem, sir. It happens all the time. You're used to seniors. They just, you know, just wander. On that topic, sir, with the idea of looking at the past to prepare for the future, to be maximize effectiveness, efficiency, prepare for threats based off of what you have seen in the past, what should the United States be doing to develop cyber capabilities to counter these future threats, having learned from past experiences, most recently the solar winds hack? Right. So the first thing would be, remember, cyber exists in a broader context. And I always used to argue with the workforce, not argue, but I would always try to say to the workforce, it's not enough for us to be cyber professionals, so to speak. We have to understand the strategic context in which cyber operates. That'll make us more effective and it'll help us make smarter choices about how we apply cyber. Secondly, um, I always try to remind people, and I mean, you know, from dealing with the president to the secretary, et cetera, just because we see activity or events in cyber doesn't mean we, the default should be that we automatically de- respond in kind. So what we need to do is step back and ask ourselves, so what are the advantages? What are the capabilities much broader than cyber that we as a nation enjoy that potentially will have impact against an adversary who is engaged in these kinds of now, that might include cyber, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, the biggest change that I saw was, and again, I was part of both the Obama team and the Trump team, working directly with the presidents as well as the, their, their teams. And the, the Obama side, for example, during that, and again, I was very proud to be a part of that, that team, some great people, many of whom have now all come back. It seems like it's everybody's coming back. Um, you know, they view, they were really concerned about, well, if we engage in offensive cyber activity because we're so vulnerable, um, it's really only going to impact, it's only going to hurt us. We need to be really careful about this. And I do think we need to be careful. But one of my arguments always was, it, it is interesting to me, we have put ourselves in a situation where Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran view cyber as a tool that they can employ, a tool that actually generates lower risk for them because they believe we will not respond significantly or the way we will respond uh, means that they can take the pain, they can take the pressure. So the benefit far outweighs the risk. On the other hand, we have come to the conclusion that the application of cyber broadly offensively, but that also includes espionage and other areas, 
we seemingly have come to the conclusion that cyber is all risk and therefore we take it off the table. And I just thought, this is crazy. You know, put another way with the secretary, at least, and I wasn't the only one, and he himself of the four that I worked with, um, you know, when I was a four star, um, you know, my argument with them was, look, if this is phase zero, look at what's going on in cyber. If this is phase zero, you know, peacetime activity, what do you think the long-term implications are for us? We are, we're suffering hundreds of billions of dollars of loss in intellectual property. We're having significant impacts on productivity as ransomware from criminals, nation state activity. I think about the money and the time we are pouring into responding to cyber actors. Think about what we could be doing with that money, that time, with those resources. We have to change this dynamic, it's ridiculous. And so one of the arguments we made as the Trump team came in was, we need to develop the full range of capabilities in cyber so that you as a policymaker, as a decision maker, or military commanders as decision makers, at least have a set of tools that they consider. Now they may not decide to employ them, but don't we want the options to be there? And President Trump and the team were very receptive to that idea. Secretary Mattis was very receptive to that idea. Um, and so we really pivoted. And so, you know, we have developed a, a, a pretty broad range of offensive capability. We have publicly acknowledged that we have used that offensive capability in the fight against ISIS. We have publicly acknowledged that we have used that capability in a series of actions in 2018 designed to preclude the Russians from attempting to use cyber as a vehicle to interfere with the 2018 election cycle. And so I think we've shown, look, you can apply cyber offensively in a measured and a specific way that helps to achieve the desired outcomes you want, that cyber weapons are not automatically like nuclear weapons. What I mean by that is, oh my God, use a nuke, now we're automatically going from a tactical to a strategic level, and now we're talking about you know, massive retaliation, mutually assured destruction, so just don't use nukes at all. I argued cyber is very different. It's not the same. Now, I'm not arguing that there aren't some aspects of it that have massive potential implications. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that. But my argument was we need to look at cyber as a spectrum. There are tactical implications and strategic, and we should not allow the strategic piece to forestall any application of this. I just don't think that's in our best interest because, quite frankly, all of our adversaries are out there or already have come to that conclusion. And look what they're doing. I, I just think. You know, we, we just can't sit here and react. We don't do that. We, as military leaders, we would never accept, if we had the choice, we would never choose a reactive strategy where it's, don't worry, we'll just respond whenever. Your whole career is based on this idea. Look, we are going to shape the adversary's choices. We are going to shape the adversary's actions. We are going to drive them to courses of action that benefit us. That, that's what we want to do. We want to take away some of their choices, some of their options. I think cyber is the same. So, sir, given the complexity of what you just described, national security implications, privacy implications, how should the government and the private sector be working together with a certain level of transparency to ensure that average citizens that don't necessarily understand that entire side of warfare are still able to trust the government to act in their best interest? Well, you know, certainly a topic I spent a lot of time as the director of the National Security Agency, as did the broader team focused on, because we have to acknowledge, look, our citizens have granted their government and by extension, 
the elements within the government, DOD, intelligence, law enforcement, et cetera, justice. Our, our citizens have granted the government a great set of authorities that if misused, go against the interests of our citizens. And in extreme cases, their safety, their well-being, their privacy, that's part of the, the idea of a democracy. This idea that our citizens entrust capabilities in their government to be applied for very specific purposes along very specific lines and within very specific authorities. So that our citizens then say, okay, I granted you that authority, I granted you that capability, so to speak, and there's a legal framework that protects how it's used. There's a series of checks and balances. Okay, I can feel confident in doing that, that this isn't going to be an authoritarian state and that we're not, you know, the state isn't going to turn around and use those capabilities against me to monitor me, to, you know, forestall my privacy, to intrude into my daily life, which you see in authoritarian states. Um, all the time. Boy, that's our strength as a nation. That's not us. We will not do some things. And you have to acknowledge in our history, there have been abuses. Go back again. I'm old enough. I, I grew up in the 1960s and the 1970s. In the 1960s and the 1970s, the government used intelligence capabilities to monitor the reaction of the citizens of our nation to the Vietnam War, to try to understand their political views. That's not what we should be about. That, that oof. you know, I and boy, it, the members of the intelligence profession, for example, you know, as a citizen, I have seen when this has been abused before. And I always said to myself, this is not going to happen on my watch. That is not what we are about. Our citizens trust us and we have a responsibility to execute the mission within that framework of trust. To go back to the specifics of your question, I think, number one, we need to change the fundamental model that we use now. What do I mean by that? At the moment, we tend to focus on the idea of collaboration between the government and the private sector. And that generally equates to the private sector is going to do its thing and the government's going to do its thing. And we'll talk to each other if we see something that's interesting or relevant to the other side, so to speak. Um, I think that's pretty flawed approach in cyber. I, I think the future is you got to move beyond collaboration and integration. Why aren't we, the government and the private sector, working together 24-7 on cybersecurity, for example. Take solar winds. The government didn't discover this, the private sector did. Think about how faster we might have been if the private sector and the government were actually working together on cybersecurity 24 seven. That would increase the private sector's knowledge of what the government does and doesn't do. I think it would engender greater confidence on the part of our citizens if they view that the government is partnering with the private sector and not just doing its own thing, so to so to speak, uh, and again, it's not because people aren't working hard. It's not because people don't have good intention, but I just think the, the way we're dealing with things now um, is not the optimal approach. I'm not saying it's a terrible approach. I just don't think it's the optimal approach because cyber doesn't recognize geography. It doesn't recognize these boundaries between what is public sector and what is private sector. It, it's not structured that way. So I just think we need to take a little bit of a different approach to this and to capitalize on that knowledge, that innovation that is resident within the private sector, as well as capitalize on the billions, you know, literally trillions of dollars that we have invested in government capacity in cyber and in other areas. We want to maximize that investment. And there's things legally, you know, that I could do as an intelligence professional, as a foreign intelligence individual outside the United States, 
that private industry can't, for example. Likewise, there are things legally I can't do and wouldn't want to do domestically, but the private sector can. So I just think we need a little bit of a different approach. All right, last question for you, sir. Any other words of wisdom or encouragement for the DoD at Reed's audience? And I, listen, I wish that makes it sound like, well, Rogers is some guy who knows it all, and that is far from the truth. The, the only thing that I would say broadly is um, the world is gaining in complexity. When I think back to the world when I first joined the Navy, you know, when I got my commission in 1981, height of the Cold War, um, I spent my time focused on great power competition, largely through surrogates in the sense that we never really got into an armed conflict with the Russians. But in my time, you know, I had combat time in Grenada, Beirut, El Salvador, the Persian Gulf with, I was out there for the tanker wars back in the late um, 80s. As I think back to that world, and I think back to the world, and I think of the world of today and tomorrow, in some ways we're going back. The, the power of the nation state is rising again, and it is becoming the predominant, not the only though, it's becoming the predominant shaper of the strategic environment in which we find ourselves now in the 21st century. The second thing I would say that is different is technology. Think about the rate of change. Think about how technology is changing, not just warfare, but it's changing day-to-day -day life. For those of you that are naval professionals, I joined the Navy where we still used grease pencils on plastic boards in the combat information center. I was the combat information center officer on a brand new Spruance class destroyer. And yet we were using technology from the Second World War. Um, and yet in my first sea tour as a surface warfare officer, I lived through the introduction of Tomahawk, so long range precision strike. Um, I did the first deployment with uh, with Ticonderoga was in our battle group, the first Aegis deployment, you know, and how that changed the data systems that we created to ensure situation awareness on a global level, in part to support long range targeting and precision strike. You know, I saw the transition from the world of the past to the world that we take for granted kind of now. So I, I urge you to understand technology. I urge you to understand how warfare is changing, even as some of it is still very constant. I also highlight the idea that as important as technology is, men and women are what give us our greatest advantage and what sustain our success. So don't ever forget in this journey, even as you're trying to learn, as you're trying to understand all these things, don't ever forget about men and women. It's not just technology. It's why leadership remains one constant, I would argue, in my 37 years, the importance and power of strong leadership. And I still remember that as a, as a J.O., looking at my first skipper on that ship to trying to live it as a four-star you know, running a combatant command and an intelligence organization. Um, the power of leadership remains so important, so foundational. Um, I, I'd also encourage you to remember it's a marathon, not a sprint. What do I mean by that? I used to say this all the time. Look, I need you to go the distance. And the distance to me isn't a particular tour. It's not a particular crisis. I want you to be part of this team for decades. That means I need you to be physically, mentally, emotionally fit. I need you to be able to sustain yourself in crisis and in times of stress. That means you've got to have a life outside the uniform world. As much as that means to all of us, and man, like I said, I, I got to live a life. As I tell my children, 
How lucky was your father that every day of his adult life, literally for 37 years, he lived the dream that he had as a little boy and the reality was even better than the dream. Man, I loved my life in uniform. Not because of the rank, not because of the jobs, because I was part of a team, a team that I really respected, that I loved being with, doing a mission that I thought mattered, that was relevant. I just, even on the darkest days or the times when you're away from your family and your friends and life just is not great and you're not getting enough sleep and the stress level is so high and you're, man, it's dirty and cold or it's nothing but this steel piece of ship out in the middle of the ocean and it's month after month after month. You know, it's those men and women that keep you going. And I just thank all of you for your, those of you who continue to serve, not just in uniform, but as part of our civilian team. And whether you do it as active reserve or guard, like I said, I am the son of a guardsman. My father was in the guard for 27 years and I was a kid growing up, a different guard then, but my father was, was a rifle company uh, commander in Grant Park in 1968 for the Democratic National Convention. And I can remember talking to him about what was, what was that like, Dad? I mean, you're between protesters and the police. Oh, man. So thanks very much for what you do and for your willingness to serve. It's not easy. And you know, for those of you who are retired like me, thanks for what you did. Because all of us, everything we do is built on the, on the shoulders of the men and women that went before us. And I was grateful for those men and women. And I hope those of you that continue to serve today are, are grateful for the ones who went before you. But thanks very much, Ryder. Thanks. Hey, thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week.